Hey everyone, welcome to the Fight to Thrive podcast. I'm Dr. Tyler Simmett. I'm a physical therapist and the captain in the U.S. Army. So this podcast is meant to serve as kind of your one-stop shop for tools to improve the physical, psychological, nutritional, emotional, and spiritual aspects of your life as I'm going to speak with experts throughout all of these fields. Now the show is called Fight to Thrive because you know this knowledge is great, but if you don't have the discipline to keep fighting every day to become a better version of yourself through this information, this podcast simply isn't going to help you. So keep fighting and let's take better care of ourselves so we can ultimately take better care of others. I do have to mention that the views expressed in this podcast are that of myself and my guests and do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. All right. Hey, welcome, everyone. So this week, uh, got a special episode. We got my buddy, uh, Captain Chris Boyer, on today, and really excited to have him. If you want to just uh, give your you know, quick introduction of yourself, Chris, and kind of what you've been up to. Yeah, sure. Uh, so as uh, you said, I'm, I'm Captain Chris Boyer. I just, I'm just finishing up an H2F assignment here at Fort Riley, where I was with the 97th Military Police Battalion. Uh, and I am uh, currently transitioning over to the 173rd Airborne in Vicenza, Italy. Um, so closing up shop here, uh, preparing everyone for a transition over to either a division element uh, or some members of my team are actually going to uh, different locations now with different teams. Um, and I'm getting ready to try and take this model over to a you know a larger echelon with the brigade. Awesome. Yeah. And so kind of the model that he's speaking of is the topic of today's discussion, and that's the the musculoskeletal triage system. Well, you, you mean taking the the H2F model over there, Chris? No, no, the triage okay. the triage model. The uh, okay. Europe is not going to get H2F for several years still. So Roger. Okay. Gotcha. So yeah, so um, you know. Chris is a, a physical therapist, as you said, and he was in the class above me and was kind of my mentor. So really happy to have him on. And he's doing some really awesome things here uh, in the Army and, and within his uh, H2F job and, and kind of going above and beyond and, and has always done so, setting a really good example for us. So this isn't geared just for a physical therapist, and, and it's probably less so if you're just you know a general athlete out there that's interested in optimizing your health and nutrition, your health and wellness, this is more towards providers within the DOD system. Um, so it, I think it, it's going to have a lot of good information in general, and I'm not trying to tell you to, to turn off the episode, but I'm just saying, you know, this isn't our typical episode and it's geared more towards medical providers and in ways to improve our inf- efficiency of what we're doing. Um, in, in, in implementing this system, Chris has seen a uh, 90% improvement in the medical readiness within his H2F unit. Is that, is that correct statistic, Chris? Uh, yes. So 90, 91% drop in our non-deployables specifically. Um, so, I mean, pretty, pretty significant. And then if you compare that to a, a similar unit, uh, there's, there's no comparison really. Um, even the rate of our uh, decrease was about twice that of another H2F unit that, you know, used a, had a similar composition of their team, but used a different care model. Yeah. That, and that's huge. It's like, so, you know, within the military health system, if you look at it as, as a business, you know, I would say the readiness is our bottom line, right? That's like, that is whether we're in the black, right? If you will, if we're, so if, if like you look at it from a business model and you're improving your profits 90%, like that's pretty, or, or, 
decreasing your losses 90%, however you want to look at it, that's pretty huge, right? So uh, this is something that we should all take seriously and, and, and study it. And, and we'll kind of go into some more details about it. Um, you know, so the idea of kind of why you, I'm just going to kind of get into why you may have wanted to implement something like this and, and just kind of the, the theoretical, theoretical uh, framework for it. And, and if any of this doesn't sound uh, fair, you can go ahead and correct me. But sure. basically, so there's a musculoskeletal mass cow situation, uh, which isn't going anywhere. It hasn't gone anywhere for years, right? The, the, the injury rates and the uh, overall uh, duty days lost due to musculoskeletal injuries far outweigh any other reasoning for duty days loss. Um, and this is kind of part of the whole reason why the army wanted to change and invest so much money within a change of culture and incorporating this uh, holistic health and fitness in the ACFT and these things. However, if we just sit and wait for that to, to change our readiness rates and our deployability, it's, we're not going to get anywhere for a long time. Like for, in my case, I'm still the only person on my H2F team. So I don't have a strength coach. I don't have an occupational therapist. I don't even have a director yet. Uh, they're coming in, but, uh, yeah. So that's part of the idea of why I want to start this podcast, right? Is we need to take initiative if we really want to actually see change in the numbers and, and actually make things happen. Uh, and within th this mass cal situation, which, you know, if you're not familiar that the mass casualty, uh, refers to like a downrange situation where you have a, a mass casualty, you have to figure out where you're going to, uh, send your patients in what is the correct place to send them in the most efficient manner. Uh, right now, the idea is for a lot of people is just to send everyone to physical therapy. And like, as we talked a little bit offline, what I'm kind of seeing is our access to care just keeps getting backed up. As I said, I'm the only one on this HDF team. So I'm trying to implement things like this while also trying to manage like a busy patient care schedule and, you know, that creates a lot of inefficiencies in the system where now you have a delay of someone who could benefit from PT, who are likely to benefit from PT, they're delayed, you know, four weeks or whatever. And then because I have uh, people who have had, you know, chronic pain that may not be mechanically related at all, that may or may not uh, benefit, you know, not as likely to benefit from PT, continuing to fill up the schedule and, and being stuck on a lot of PT schedules for, for prolonged periods. And so uh, within this, this system that you've created, we're able to implement this triage type of scenario where we're more efficiently getting these patients who have musculoskeletal injuries uh, or pain rather injury, I think might even not even be the right term here, but um, you know, we're, we're trying to get them in the right place and, and maybe avoid uh, more invasive lines of care or treatment that may not be necessary that could, you know, potentially cause harm or be a career, career ender. Is that kind of a, a fair, like overview assessment of what you're trying to do here? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that that's very fair. And the other thing is that just trying to break the mold here, because how many times, you know, you've been on the outside and, and had some experience with uh, physical therapy outside of the military health system. Do you see, how many times do you see that the number of visits that someone gets is 100% determined by their insurance? It's two times a week for six weeks, you got 12 visits. And somehow that has bled over into the military where we think that we need to treat people two to three times a week for six to eight weeks based on what? So what, what this model is, is it's, it's, it's asking people to determine, first of all, 
is this a mechanical problem? Because people could have pain for a variety of reasons. So is it a mechanical problem? And if it is a mechanical problem, is it going to change quickly or is it going to take a while? And what kind of intervention do we need to do? Is this something that I could train the patient to mostly self-treat? Is this something that needs a skilled physical therapist? Or is this something that, you know, we can use some of our auxiliaries, whether they're athletic trainers, uh, PT techs, PTAs. Um, so we're not just putting everyone on the schedule with the exact same frequency, the exact same dosing. It is 100% tailored to the patient. And for those patients that have drivers of pain and disability that are not necessarily related to the musculoskeletal system, or maybe those are, those, I, those um, drivers are not as dominant, you know, we've got a more of a psychosocial dimension or a uh, coping mechanism issue. Um, then it's making sure that we identify that early enough that we prevent that from becoming a chronic issue, which is then going to be even harder to solve. So we're getting the patients to the people that can help them and giving them the type of physical therapy that's most likely to help them. You know, we, we have someone who has a dominant affective pain. They've got a significant emotional event going on in their life. You can manipulate them and dry needle until the cows come home. That's not mm -hmm. going to change their mind, you know, and uh, you got to know how to sort them. Uh, there, we have a lot of great treatments. We have a lot of great things that we do as therapists, but I mean, I'm sure you can relate coming out of school. The hardest part is deciding when you're going to do what to whom. And this breaks it out and it breaks it out real, real quickly at the beginning. And it has a feedback mechanism so that you can be confident that every time you come back, Hey, is it matching the pattern that you thought it was? Oh, it's not. Well, now we need to take another look. We need to make sure that we're ruling out some systemic diseases. Maybe we need to take a picture or get some labs, talk to the PCM. Um, but it's, it, it turns into an iterative decision-making process rather than a, okay, here's your diagnosis. Now do PT for six weeks, and then we're going to send you to ortho if you're not any better, which to me is, I mean, that is the definition of cookie cutter. Right. Yeah. And any, any system, you know, by nature is going to get, uh, you know, whatever results that it's designed to essentially. Right. And so the, the system that we're currently operating by has gotten pretty shitty results essentially, you know, and so like we need to change a pace like this and this is like, this is next level stuff. And it's, it can be a really big deal if we can, you know, get this implemented across the enterprise. And I think that we should, you know, I think it's amazing and I, I definitely commend you for it. I think, you know, one thing, is that it is a it can be somewhat of a complex system to try and work through which if it was really easy then someone else would have would have done it already right and so i my goal of this podcast isn't to get through every little part of the system like you would have to you know probably take out a piece of pen and paper to try and follow everything that we're talking about but i do want to kind of give you a general overview of what uh, each uh, triage category is and i'll, I'll have uh, Captain Boyer hit on, on those and then kind of what it looks like practically within like an H2F unit and how he's been able to incorporate this successfully with his H2F team. So yeah, if, Chris, if you can just kind of take us through some of the diff, all the different triage categories and, and kind of how you go through your, your process with this. Sure. So we've got four categories. We've got delayed, immediate, minimal, and then inelastic. So delayed those are your patients who are mechanical, but they need remodeling. So that includes your post-operative patients, your patients with very objective structural or soft tissue in, uh, injuries, but also can include bone stress injuries. 
These are the patients where we're taking them through the typical tissue healing timelines, the typical post-operative protocols. Um, these are your patients that are being seen multiple times during the week to make sure that they're getting adequate stimulus for tissue remodeling. So that's delayed. Immediate, immediate's easy. That's the emergency that doesn't belong in your clinic. That's that aortic aneurysm that walks in or um, a vertebral basilar insufficiency or something weird. So that shows up. And then as a direct access provider, you need to be able to recognize that and get it over to the ER um, most likely. What that also includes is our emergent behavioral health cases. So we do a stratified behavioral health screen in the triage model, whereas, you know, instead of just asking two questions, uh, we use the OSPRO, y, uh, OSPRO yellow flag, um, which is a very good tool and it's rather concise. And if a patient scores high on that, they'll get an additional survey to break out kind of their risk of severe depression. And if it's uh, basically severe enough, um, they get walked over to behavioral health. So that's immediate. All right. That's so the, those P are the first two. Real, real quick on that. The, mm. That's the PHQ nine that they'll get. Correct. Subsequently, right? Yes. Yes. And then, and then, so do you, cause I know that I've used the OSPRO before. Is that something that you keep like PDF copies of, or do you go in and input the values online? Cause the scoring is kind of different, isn't it? The scoring is different. Yeah. So it's a great question. I actually use a system called motion and that's through DHA and it is an automated online outcomes tracking system. Uh, it's the DHA's version of photo. If you're familiar with photo at all. Um, and I've been working with uh, Colonel Lee, who's really in charge of that program. What the patient, what, what ends up happening, the patient flow is that I, I could generate a QR code for every survey set. So I could have one for knee, one for ankle, one for low back. A patient will scan that with his or her phone, register on their phone and start filling out the surveys right on their phone. And then I've got my screen and it pops up with all, the, all their uh, responses. Um, so I could tell right then and there, okay, OSPRO is a little uh, elevated as they finish up their surveys. I'm taking out my laminated PHQ-9 um, and then they go ahead and fill that out. So the machine does it for me. That's awesome. So, but if they don't have uh, a, their phone with them or don't have service, they're not able to do that? Or do you have like a backup plan for that? Yeah, we, we have a, an iPad in the clinic, um, which is just a personal iPad, but because it's not on a, um, we're not, it's through a DHA secure log on. So you actually have to configure it. It's real simple, but they use a token system. Um, and then if all else fails, I can transcribe all their answers. I could, you know, just turn my monitor around have them click the answers using their, using the mouse. Um, so that's, that's how we do it. We automate it. And that, uh, that kind of rounds out immediate with our behavioral health. That's awesome. Yeah, go um, ahead. You can keep, keep going through. Yeah. So then we've got minimal and minimal, these are mechanical problems, but these are rapidly resolvable mechanical problems. So these are patients that come in with pain um, and usually a you know, functional deficit. And with a, the application of mobilization, manipulation, repeated motions, you're able to, or even a sustained position, you're able to rapidly improve their range of motion or their symptoms. So like the classic example of this is, um, Ridicular low back pain. So low back pain with pain that travels down the leg that centralizes with uh, repeated prone extension. So that's an example of it. But you might also think about the John Child's uh, lumbopelvic manipulation clinical prediction rule, right? So if you go back and you read that study, uh, patients that responded well to manipulation, they fit that rule. They had a 50% improvement on their Oswestry within two weeks. That's pretty incredible. 
So minimal are those patients. They're the patients that uh, they come in and you can apply an intervention and see an immediate result and that result lasts. So you're either seeing the day one change or you're seeing a, a change between uh, the initial evaluation and the second evaluation. And there's a, a fair amount of literature on the topic that uh, really fleshes out you know, how this is a good prognostic indicator. So that's minimal. Lastly, um, we've got inelastic. And inelastic, you know, we use that word because it basically means that whatever you apply, whatever intervention you do, it's not going to change the course of this person's uh, medical trajectory in terms of readiness. So, you know, if someone is initially classified as inelastic, it's because they don't demonstrate a mechanical behavior of symptoms. We have low to no suspicion for a red flag issue or systemic etiology, um, and they've got a elevated score on the OSPRO. So they're demonstrating some negative, negative coping, um, some fear avoidance. And we're seeing that that is really the driving factor of their pain. Uh, it's these central factors, these psychosocial factors. And in our case, because we are in a 100% work comp environment, it's also motivational factors. There's some people that, you know, they, they just don't want to be in the army. And, you know, you see it a lot in the trainee population because obviously it's a trainee population. It's, it's the first experience with the army. A lot of people kind of have buyer's remorse. Um, but, you know, you see it as well, uh, even in uh, soldiers that are beyond their first term. So the important thing is to identify that early on and to basically understand that, you know, this isn't someone that needs to be coming in the clinic um, for manual therapy or for a hands-on treatment. You know, these, these folks are gonna benefit from general exercise, either through graded exercise or graded exposure, some uh, pain neuroscience education, and really just um, someone kind of making sure that they are, that these people are, these folks are actually aligned towards their goals, right? So, you know, in the triage system, we make use of a motivation screen. When you get down to inelastic and um, you see that someone doesn't have mechanical symptoms, if they truly have a central dominant uh, issue, their, their pain is there and it's really because they have something else in their life that's affecting them. The way that we can leverage exercise, it's like we're using the off-label effects of exercise to, fit, to help uh, solve their, um, that person's problems with their mood uh, or decrease their fear. Um, and it, so they need to demonstrate some pretty consistent work there because uh, it's not just going to go away overnight. Um, so with those folks, uh, you know, we make use of group fitness classes and cardiovascular exercise. Uh, two reasons why. Uh, number one, it's good for you and you get an endogenous opioid release with cardiovascular exercise. Number two is it's really easy to set some objective targets to give people something to work towards and also to kind of gauge to see how invested they are in their own recovery. So if I have someone who comes in and I decide I'm gonna give them graded exercise, I want them to work in zone three of their, uh, you know, their heart rate zone three uh, for 30 minutes. Um, and I'm able to actually take a look at their heart rate. You know? so, so we would have, my athletic trainer would run uh, this and he would do it during reconditioning, but it can happen at any time really. It's a group fitness setting and we'd see, okay, Let's say someone met their goal. Now they're going to go a little bit longer the next day. Let's say someone didn't meet their goal. All right, we need to figure out why. Um, but it, in any case, it establishes pattern and, and we can kind of either build someone's confidence up to the point where now they're ready to engage in a, a strength-oriented plan and maybe reevaluate. Or, you know, uh, sometimes it happens that, you know, people, they tell you that they want to be there, but 
they don't show you that they want to be there. Uh, and then it's, it's time to, it's time to say goodbye. Um, you know, how long, how right long is that? How long does that process usually look for you? Let's say, you know, they're low on that motivational scale that you, that you give them and they aren't really engaged in the group exercise or the great exercise. Like what's the point where it's like, okay, we need to start talking like at medical evaluation board. Well, so, um, two, so there's two issues there. So the first one is give them about two weeks, two weeks to a month and then reassess their uh, patient reported outcomes. Are we seeing an improvement even on their yellow flag scores? Um, after that, then the question really needs to be, is there something to justify any musculoskeletal profiling? Because if there's not, you know, um, if you have a concern for a structural issue, now would be the time to investigate it. So you might want to order the imaging, but you can't just med board someone just because there needs to be an objective medical finding. So if there's nothing musculoskeletal there, there's nothing mechanical there, and that patient is not responding to your treatment as a musculoskeletal provider, mm -hmm. then that profiling is incorrect because they don't have a musculoskeletal problem. So why are you giving them a musculoskeletal profile? So that person needs to then go back to the PCM, discuss other treatment options, fit for duty assessment, et cetera. Um, but the timeline is two weeks to two to four weeks. Now that's, that's if they get through the funnel. Um, if at the front end of all of this, we do ask for a motivation screen. Now, if the person demonstrates low motivation, and I define that, uh, and I'm using trans theoretical model here um, for those of you who know that at home, uh, but, uh, you know, you, you basically, we're asking people on a, on a scale of zero to 100, how willing are you to participate in physical therapy? And anything below a 70 means that they're really not willing to participate in physical therapy. So what do I do? I make sure that nothing crazy is going on. Um, you know, make sure that they don't have a broken bone or, you know, ask them all the red flag questions, still screen them, still do an exam. But then I just educate them and I say, hey, I understand that you maybe don't think physical therapy is right for you right now. Um, here's what I can provide. And then if you'd like to follow up in two weeks, uh, that's perfectly fine. Uh, but I'd like you to, you know, return to your PCM. Uh, because, you know, if, if they don't want to be there, you know, you're fighting an uphill battle. You know, they're already upset just to be there. Uh, it's hard enough to get, uh, you know, buy-in at that point. Um, so those are kind of the two ways we address the, the motivation component. And you like to, to utilize motivational interviewing as well, correct? Yeah, I, I think that it's a useful tool or it's probably the only tool. Um, there's a few of them out there. There's also the patient uh, shared decision-making model, which is also kind of motivational interviewing. Uh, that requires a little bit more legwork because you essentially can show the patient like a menu of options and say, here's the pros and the cons of each. Uh, but I tend to use motivational interviewing because there's a reason why, oftentimes there's a reason why someone's in your office. It's not just because someone told them to show up. Because if someone just told them to show up and they didn't want to go, they wouldn't go. People know show all the time. So there's something, some part of them in there that says, I need to be here. Um, so you know, I, I learned this a long time ago is if someone rates their willingness to participate in physical therapy as three out of 10 or 30 out of 100, you could say, well, why didn't you put it as a zero? You know, don't, don't ask them why they didn't put it higher. Ask them why they didn't put it lower. Cause now they'll say, well, you know, my wife's been getting on me about getting seen for my back pain or, you know, it's really a bummer that I can't like play with my kids right now because my knee hurts so much. And now they start enunciating these reasons and, you know, articulating why they're there. And it almost kind of, I think it kind of 
they talk themselves into it to, to an extent. They start to maybe remember why they made the appointment to begin with or why they originally came in, even though they're upset right now. And, you know, it makes sense that they'd be upset. If you're in pain, you're probably going to be upset. Um, so that's, that's one technique that I've used. Uh, I'm not, you know, still learning more about it, but uh, yeah. I think it's a powerful do you, one. Do you have any, any like recommended readings that you've done to, if people want to delve a little bit deeper into MI? Um, man, there is a, there's a paper out by Paul Mitkin. Um, I can't remember exactly. It might've been in journal manual manipulative therapy, but I want to say it came out like last year and he has, uh, several, um, what do you call vignettes, clinical vignettes on motivational interviewing. I think that's fantastic. It's a great review beyond that motivational interviewing is prevalent in nursing literature. Um, and if you simply go on YouTube and search for motivational interviewing, you'll see quite a few examples. Uh, that was primarily how I uh, learned you know, some of these techniques. Awesome. Yeah, we could put a link to some of that in the show notes as well. Um, so just to kind of do a quick review here. So we have um, for our categories, we have our immediate being basically, you know, they don't belong in your clinic. That's the, that's the easy one to kind of get out of the way. Um, we have delayed, meaning that they're going to, you know, they're, going to need some kind of tissue remodeling to take place over probably a longer period of time. And so within that, uh, is there like a, a time period? Is it, is it based on like a, pro, a prognosis that you're giving them? Like, uh, I think it's going to take longer than 60 days, 30 days. Like how do you kind of split that up or decide yeah, we, that? You know, we, we, we've talked a lot about by we, I mean, uh, you know, we talked talking with uh, major John Chicarello um, who's in the soft community and um, major Nate Henry, who's the division PT over in fourth ID. And we talked about some of these cut times because you kind of have to have them. If you're going to look back, uh, you, you have to have a, a, you have to draw a line in the sand and say, at this point, we need to circle back and take a look. So we decided on 60 days. Um, and the reason is, is because that seems to be fair uh, for a tendinopathy um, for, you know, various bony injuries um, because, you know, 60 days, uh, that's what, about seven weeks, you know, so you're going to see some change then. Um, you should see something. If you haven't seen any change in 60 days, then you're doing something wrong because 60 days worth of tissue remodeling, you should at least, I mean, you should be getting at least some neuromuscular changes for strength. There's scar formation that's going to happen at the collagen level. You're starting to um, reorganize some of that tissue. Uh, so we draw the line there. Whereas for the other categories, we put it at 30 days. And the reason we put it at 30 days is because once a temporary profile crosses that 30 day threshold, no matter what the limitations are, it becomes an MRC category three. And that's what matters to your commanders. That's the thing that gets briefed all the way up at every single meeting, MRC three. So that's what has to matter to us. Makes sense. Gotcha. Okay, so then we have our minimal category, meaning that there is a significant response to intervention within that first or that second visit, correct? So within correct. that, um, one kind of question that I had is, because I, I had seen in some of your products before where there seems to be kind of a uh, repeated movements or like a manual therapy kind of focus here with these type with these patients. I was curious if you also implement any kind of like, you know, motor control, uh, you know, movement restriction, improvement, things like that to uh, help, especially with stuff with injuries that I see that are like ACFT related. I think, yeah, I can get somebody to respond really well 
within clinic, but you know, if they're not correcting these movement deficiencies that brought them in in the first place, then I'll just see them again in a couple of weeks. You know what I mean? So are you guys implementing anything like that as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really for, you're wanting to do four, four things for the minimal patient. You, you first want to reduce their pain. Then you got to maintain that change that you've made in the clinic. Then you have to recover their function and then you have to prevent it from happening again. So those last two parts, the recovery of function and, and the prevention, that you, you hit the nail right on the head, Tyler. That motor control, um, that's really going to matter a lot. Um, sometimes, you know, less so motor control, more so strength. Uh, but no, you, you can't necessarily uh, manipulate someone and then, you know, hey, you're good to go from, from here on out. So um, even though they get better rapidly, uh, it's because they're out of pain rapidly. So if they're out of pain, they're going to have fewer participation restrictions, so, few for, so less, uh, fewer profile restrictions and less time loss due to profile. So that's why we call it minimal. Um, but we still go through, you know, a thorough rehab with them and go through functional testing, um, particularly as it relates to, you know, what they, what the patient thinks is the most relevant. Um, but we'll go through those functional movements like, you know, the leg tuck, the deadlift, the push up, uh, those very relevant ACFT motions uh, to make sure that, okay, you know, we relieve the pain. Um, let's make sure that we're not setting you up for failure. Uh, so that is 100% part of the problem, part of the uh, process. Got it. And then, so for the inelastic, uh, the inelastic category, we have, Basically, my understanding is patients that have much poor prognosis secondary to whether that be, uh, like you said, kind of workers' compensation type of motivations or, uh, you know, high yellow flags on that OSPRO screening, uh, whatever the case may be, you just have a, a poor prognosis for this patient or they've been they like you said, these categories are flexible. So maybe they were started off in that delayed category and then all of these other things happened, you know, during their recovery from surgery, which is a significant event in someone's life that can cause other types of psychosocial issues to happen. Um, you know, cause them to cross over to the end of this inelastic category. And so, you know, you mentioned doing like group fitness classes and in, in and I think when you were, when you were discussing it before, you had talked about group fitness and like graded exercise as separate things. Like, is it your athletic trainer is doing like the more specific graded exercise for that one person. And then you're having other group, group, uh, fitness classes or were those, are those combined? It's, it's combined. So graded okay. exercise is, is basically a time-based, um, cognitive behavioral therapy type PT graded exposure is going to be very individual based, based on what they, they perceive to be threatening or injurious. Graded exercise is much easier because you don't have to run through all the different positions and, and activities of daily living. You could simply provide some exercise and provided it's, you know, not, it's a low threat, unlikely to exacerbate their symptoms. And that's why cardio, you could usually find some cardio that someone uh, can tolerate, um, you know, depending on the, uh, the implement. Um, so we use the group fitness setting because there is some evidence and some thought that um, that vicarious experience helps develop self-efficacy. Uh, and, you know, I couldn't necessarily speak to that, um, but we have had a couple people that started in Elastic and they did cross over uh, and recovered. And all we had them do was graded exercise. They were worried, but well. You know, they were very concerned about something in their life and it was kind of manifesting, but they were fine. And they just needed that time to 
basically get in better condition because they were so avoidant of all activity that every time they moved, their deconditioned tissues were screaming at them because they were deconditioned and they were saying, whoa, something's, something's wrong. I'm injured here. Um, but uh, by going through that, that graded exercise progression, you can prove it, prove it otherwise. And we have had a couple people that have come back from that. It's been, you know, pretty rewarding. So I'd say that the inelastic category is not necessarily a lost cause, but it's, they're unlikely to return to duty. Not necessarily unlikely to, you know, return to normal life as a human being, but we have certain things we have to do as soldiers and they're unlikely to return to duty. You know, even in a, even in interdisciplinary pain uh, centers, 25% of the patients never improve. I mean, 25%, that's a lot. And that's in a center with a physiatrist, a psychiatrist, a OT, a PT. I mean, throwing the book at people, 25% still don't improve. So, you know, I think we need to kind of, you know, be realistic here and understand that at some point we're going to get to a point of diminishing returns. And the longer we keep these folks churning in the medical system, the more opportunities for misinformation to come in, for them to see someone and get a, you know, a, a, maybe an unfair diagnosis, undergo some procedure. And now, you know, that's, that's become who they are. You know, they, they have this chronic disease. Um, and that's not what we want as physical therapists. Right. Okay. So with these, uh, you know, this inelastic category, you, are you having, you, you said the athletic trainers are running the, the group fitness classes? Well, my athletic trainer did. Um, okay. Are you, but I, you know, there's a lot of ways to uh, kind of split this. And my athletic trainer is actually taking a job as a director over at Fort Bragg. Um, and we've done a lot of brainstorming about this. So if you'd like, I mean, we could talk now or talk later about kind of how he and I have envisioned like the ideal setup that if we had all of our people and we were to do it again, you know, we, we have a pretty good idea how we would do it. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely could get into some details. And I guess, you know, the listener can be creative if that's something that they want to implement, but you, you touched on something that I think is important. And that's the idea that, you know, if they're not able to return to duty, kind of like I mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's, this is not, um, I don't mean to sound harsh. This is not a welfare system, right? This is a business and we're supposed to be operating at uh, the most optimal level that we can. And if we have somebody that prognostically has a, a very low likelihood of returning to duty to be able to perform their job, then, you know, there's not a good reason to delay the inevitable other than just like a lot of sunken costs to the army and, and lost resources and time. And so one thing you'd mentioned in the training modules for this is the idea that we need to look at MOS specific required job requirements and use that as a guideline is if, you know, we need to start looking at other options to pursue with this, uh, with this soldier. Can you speak to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, that's, that's what it comes down to with return to duty. And that's a question that how many times did we hear that in PT school? How are you going to figure out whether they're ready to return to duty? Well, guess what? You don't have to figure it out. The Army figured it out for you, and they put it in these regulations that say exactly what everyone is supposed to do. It's, it's great. Uh, you, you have a built-in functional capacity examination or evaluation. So if I am looking at a 65 Bravo physical therapist, we have to be part of a four-person litter that carries 250 pounds. Uh, like 100 yards, I think. So if someone has a, uh, let's say, a multi-directional shoulder instability, they don't want to go to surgery, or 
they failed their surgery is, uh, you know, for whatever reason, didn't work out. You know, maybe there's some, they, they're a smoker, they didn't do their rehab, whatever. And they can't pick up that litter without their shoulder dislocating. Well, I mean, there you go. You can't perform the MLS. And if you have, and once you hit that medical readiness decision point of this condition has stabilized and is unlikely to change, um, then you have to determine, can the person do their MOS? If they can't do their MOS, can they at least do the soldier tasks? And that's when you figure, that's, that's how you start to cone down what your recommendation is, whether it's going to be a, a recommended MAR2 for reclass, a recommended uh, P2 or um, you know, permanent profile, can they still do what they need to do for the MOS? Can they still do all their soldiering tasks, but they just have a very specific limitation? Uh, or is it going to be a referral to the MEB? Now, unfortunately, um, many of our colleagues, I think, are just unaware that there is a written down standard for what a level two profile is. So I'll give you an example. If you cannot perform climbing drill one, that is a P3. That is not a P2. So if you can't do climbing drill one, that is a P3. Yet, I'm sure you've seen people with permanent profiles that say things like no pull-ups. That's a P3. That's not a P2. Or no running at all. That's a P3. Um, so when you get to that can you, point. Can you, speak, can you speak to the difference, just in case we have any listeners, uh, between oh, a P2 sure. and a P3? Um, so, you know, you could think of a, the, the system is one, two, three, and four. So P1, profile one, uh, means you're, you're healthy, good to go. P2 means you've got some minor limitations. Um, and that could be upper body, lower body. It even can go to like your hearing or eyesight, I believe. And then P3 is more limitations. And if you have that classification, if a provider puts that on a profile, then your case is referred to a medical evaluation board for evaluation. It doesn't necessarily mean separation, but it means evaluation. And then a P4, we don't really deal too much in P4s. I think those are just for the sense organs, um, but it's a similar concept, you know, furthering disability. Gotcha. And then with the P2, that essentially means that you are able to, to do alternate events within like an ACFT, correct? Correct. Um, you, you have, there's, but there's a minimum level of performance, right? There's some minimum, there's some hard minimums that you have to do. Uh, I know the ACFT, you know, they haven't really published firm guidance just yet on it. It will be coming out. Um, but for right now, you have to do one card. You have to do one of the cardiovascular events of the, a of the APFT. Um, if you have a lower body level two profile, so P2, you still have to march two miles in full kit and five miles in standard uniform. And you still have to be able to run at own pace and distance. So if you can't do all of those things, then it's not a P2. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So Within the, uh, this system, have you had any discussion with, I, I saw another resource that you use for a triage category specific for PCMs. Have you had discussions with PCMs within your unit and have they kind of bought into this model and has it, has it been effective, would you say? So I, I've worked with five PCMs. Uh, the unit I, the, the MPs are, um, unfortunately, they don't have an organic uh, PA or nurse practitioner. So we kind of have a rotation. All the PCMs I've worked with have been great. I've worked with a couple P or a PA, a physician and two nurse practitioners. Um, and they certainly saw the power of this. Um, they don't like back pain. They don't like it. They don't learn enough about, about it. And they, 
you know, they don't want to feel like they have nothing to offer. Um, so they've been really receptive to this now, you know, trying to flesh it out a little bit more, uh, like with the checklist you saw, that's kind of the next phase. Um, but initially it was simple. It was a, okay, if, you know, I want you to go ahead and rule out the red flags, send it to me if it's mechanical. And then if I tell you it's not mechanical, then you know what to do, which is rule out systemic, consider imaging, consider additional referrals. Um, and, you know, the, uh, uh, current nurse practitioner I work with, um, I'd say that, you know, we've had the longest time working together out of all of the PCMs and, uh, he certainly understands the model and he, he knows if he has any doubt that I can give him an, a pretty quick answer through this assessment of whether someone is mechanical or not. Uh, so he'll send people to me as kind of like a, okay, this is someone who's been on a permanent profile, but now they're coming back. Do you have anything to offer them? And I don't, I don't need six weeks to give them an answer. I can give them an answer with it. Gotcha. So with, within that, if they, are you having them do any kind of like the yellow flag, like Ospro screening before they would come to you, even if it is mechanical or, or how do you kind of work with that? I haven't done that yet. That's the next phase. And um, I'm going to trial the OSPRO, but also the fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire. Uh, that has demonstrated validity in the um, work comp environment for low back and shoulder pain. Uh, so uh, to be continued, coming soon gotcha. to gotcha. Vicenza, Italy. Awesome. Cool. So with within the H2F environment, how, like, let's say I'm a patient, you know, that comes in and I, I sprained my ankle. I'm coming into you for physical therapy and like, I'm starting to develop some, some depressive symptoms uh, because of my sprained ankle, not be able to engage in group fitness and PT with my formation and, and spend as much time with my friends, things like that. Uh, what, while I'm dealing with this, uh, with this tissue healing, uh, what does that look like within the H2F environment with the different providers and all you guys working together to optimize this patient's outcome within this triage system? Well, what we've done in the past, because we didn't have a cognitive skills uh, provider for the pilot, um, is that we leveraged R2, readiness and resilience. So if a patient was starting to demonstrate, you know, maybe some, um, I'd say maybe some negative self-talk uh, or, you know, something that ne didn't necessarily rise to the level of I think needing a social worker's attention or needing a psychologist's attention, uh, we made use of those uh, of our R2 folks and they were able to work on attention, focused breathing, um, visualization, uh, those types of things to kind of get people over the hump, um, more performance-based too. So it's a little bit less of a uh, touchy subject when you say, hey, I'd like this performance coach to talk to you versus, hey, you know, I think... I think I'd like you to go over to behavioral health. You know, right. Not that there should so be a let me, stigma let me, on that. Let, really me pause you, let me pause you just a second. So first off, with, with this type of patient, uh, they would be in like the delayed category, right? Uh, initially, yes, they would be in the delayed category. Gotcha. And so within that overall uh, general category, is there like a prioritization or like a hierarchy of H2F professionals that are going to be focusing, like that are going to be spending more time with this patient uh, versus if they were more like immediate or, or how does, like, how does that look? Yeah. So, it, so it's going to, it's probably, it's going to depend more on the injury. 
Um, so if it's an ankle sprain, I mean, that's something that our athletic trainers are very capable of handling. So, you know, in my environment, um, Josh, my athletic trainer, if it was an acute peripheral joint injury, he owned it. It was his. Um, but as soon as it started to turn a little bit and get, you know, maybe a little bit more complex, then I took over the treatment. Got it. And then what about uh, from the, I kind of interrupted you, but from like the mental emotional side, uh, you bring in like occupational therapy or like the registered dietitian, or you said before it was R2, like, what does that look like? Yeah. So, um, it, it looks, we, we originally, you know, created just some, uh, almost like permission slips that, you know, just referral slips for R2. Um, and we said, we established with R2, here are the categories that we have. We have a more fear avoidant one and we've got a more affective one. So the more fear avoidant, you know, we need to use some positive imagery, some positive self-talk with the affective one. We need to do more attention control and breath control, kind of uh, decreasing that sympathetic overdrive. Um, and they use um, heart rate variability quite a bit. Um, and they have a lot of, a lot of their skills that are now um, taught in FM 7-22. Uh, we would break that out. Um, one other uh, person who, you know, I think gets overlooked in this whole thing is the chaplain. Um, because a lot of times you might, uh, and this is a, this is a little tactic I got from uh, major Axel Wolf, who's another H2F provider. As many times you might see that a patient is kind of struggling and maybe they're unwilling to talk to a behavioral health provider or a performance coach, but the chaplain's totally confidential and having the chaplain there um, as another option of someone to kind of discuss life with uh, is that's, that's another, that's a way to kind of integrate the chaplain into musculoskeletal health. Nice. Yeah, that this is all great stuff that you know I need to start implementing more myself because as I said, I'm the only one on the H2F team, quote unquote, but I, I would definitely consider like, you know, we have R2 out here too. We have uh my chaplain's office is right across the hall from me and we have behavioral health. And so it's like the, they're a part of the H2F team too, you know. And so it's just uh you know, if you could speak to any within the triage uh, system specifically, do you utilize more of the H2F team for one type of category typically versus another? Yeah, I would say delayed is probably getting um, a lot of attention, especially from the dietitian. Uh, okay. When you talk about bone stress injuries, um, when you talk about soft tissue injuries, our dietitian, uh, Kyle Smithson here, um, he was working with a post-operative patient uh, and when this particular patient went back to talk to her surgeon, the surgeon commented about how well she was healing. And Kyle was, you know, really uh, he kind of implemented a, uh, he called it his tissue healing diets from the USA Olympic Training Center. Um, it was a lot of cherry juice, I'll tell you that much. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, she did, she did great. So um, we'll do that. And then with, uh, with our inelastic, it's a little harder sometimes um, to get them to really buy into a wholesale wellness change is what we learned. So we try and uh, kind of use that atomic habits principle. You start with something that's attractive and easy and doable every single day, and then eventually you kind of snowball it. Um, with our minimal and also our kind of end stage delayed, uh, we have used our strength coaches to help make bridging programs um, and kind of reintegrate them uh, into physical training. Um, but, you know, beyond just kind of making those plans and discussing them with uh, me or the athletic trainer, 
um, you know, we had our, our strength coaches mostly focus on performance enhancement uh, for the bulk of the formation um, rather than act as like a, you know, an end stage uh, physical, uh, you know, personal trainer for those who are injured. Nice. Yeah, that's, that's some, some good stuff for sure. So, you know, with, within this, it sounds like motion is a big, uh, a big piece of it as far as keeping everything huge. documented huge. and, and mm-hmm. online and, and making, being able to track progress too. So is that something that you're, you're having all of the providers use? And I guess secondary question are all the other HF providers, uh, I guess the chaplain and R2 probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't use necessarily use this, but you utilize the triage system like within their documentation. So you guys are kind of like on the same page or is it mostly something that the PT and like AT are kind of focusing on right now? So the wonderful thing about motion is that it wasn't built to just be an orthopedic device. Um, it's used more, uh, it's, it's more often used in the uh, traumatic brain injury clinics right now across the, um, across the world. So it has every single survey type you could think of. I mean, everything. It's got musculoskeletal. It's got psychosocial. It's got, it's got all the promise domains. So there's a, uh, there is enough there that anyone on the H2F team could have something to do with motion. Um, and what motion also allows you to do is put tags on the patients. So once a patient registers and you go ahead and classify, you could put the tag on them as minimal. And then anyone else who works with them can see that tag. So that way they know, oh, okay, I see that this is the, this is the expected prognosis. Um, and then as you start to get into profile review boards with maybe your medical officer, a battalion medical officer, um, get them motion access and they can see that too. Uh, so, you know, I haven't, motion was something that we started using kind of towards the end um, because honestly it wasn't on my radar until I got an introduction email with Colonel Lee. Um, but since we had motion, uh, my athletic trainer, Josh and I, we used it all the time. Uh, however, I think that there is a, a there's a really huge opportunity, um, for behavioral health providers and for dietitians to use it as another way to track, uh, you know, their patient outcomes. Was it a difficult process to get access to it? No, it was just a matter of tracking down the person who, or the team that grants the access. Um, and motion was stood up in December, 2019. Um, and it has gone through a lot of growth since then. And I think there were probably a good amount of clinicians that tried it out at the beginning and it was a little clunky and they kind of shelved it. Um, but motion has gotten a lot better. So, uh, once I was able to get access to it, um, I went through maybe an hour of screen share training and it's very easy to use. Um, it's, I mean, it's remarkably simple to use. Uh, so it, it wasn't too much of an issue. Um, and then, I do have, uh, if anyone's listening and on Microsoft Teams, I do have some startup instructions on the uh, musculoskeletal triage teams channel as well. Yeah, so how can people get uh, get into that team or find out, you know, see the specific uh, flow, che- flow, char- flow sheets and everything that you have <laughs> for, for these triage categories? Yeah, so I, uh, I think the best way is to get in touch with me directly. Um, and probably put my email in the show notes, but it's uh, christopher.w.boyer4.mil at mail.mil. Um, and I can go ahead and add you to the Microsoft team if you've got a .mil email address. Uh, that includes all the flow sheets and training. Um, now we do have a couple training opportunities. So all of it's, all of it's asynchronous. Um, we will be doing a couple sessions with uh, Bullock students, 
DPT students and Brigade Healthcare Provider students coming up, um, thankfully. So uh, we're trying to get this at every echelon so it becomes something that you know, people are familiar with and they don't have to always log on to Teams to get it. It should be very rapidly available. So, so more, to, more to come on that in terms of platforms. Awesome. So I want to play, I want to play devil's advocate for a second and just, Oh, kind please. Of, <laughs> so yeah. if, if, if we're having this, like you saying, everyone can see this label on a, on a person, uh, as inelastic and you know, that immediately can, can start to make people view this person as to someone, as someone that, you know, is not like is, has a poor prognosis, like right away before they even read their name, we can just see, okay, they poor prognosis do you think that that could be harmful if in a sense from a provider if you're walking into an evaluation uh, with that uh, preface you know do you think that that could change the quality of care potentially and it's probably going to be a different answer for every specific provider depending on the quality provider and and their potential for bias but uh, that was just one thing that came to mind when I was going through some of this stuff and, you know, that's something that other people brought up, too. It was like, well, what if you, you know, if you give them this tag, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? And the thing about it is that we already do that. You, you walk in your office and you see someone with a BMI of 35. What are you thinking? You walk into your office and you, you know, you do your chart review and you see that they have 50 encounters over the last year for the same thing. But they've got all sorts of imaging. We already do this. this is, these, are the, these are just the biases of being a clinician. But what this does is that it doesn't stop on visit one. There's a, there's a reassessment. So even if you say inelastic, it has, you have to prove it. You have to prove it, either true or false at that follow-up. There's always a feedback mechanism. So if you miss it and they're getting better, then you get to reclassify them, and that's great. Or if you miss it, you still have to go through and make sure that they don't have a systemic problem that you know, they're, they're not having an orange flag issue, a profound psychosocial crisis that needs emergent evaluation. So it's not simply a fire and forget with these categories. It's I have a preliminary or provisional classification, and now I'm confirming it using the results of my therapies. Um, so, I mean, in that way, I would say that it's, there, is, there is the potential um, for self-correction. Uh, but we're never, you know, we're not going to be able to eliminate that human factor from being clinicians or interacting with people. That's just how we are as human beings. So it's, you know, it's on us. And I think that being in, being in an interdisciplinary team, especially when you have that inelastic soldier, um, that, you know, maybe they're not going to be very comfortable talking to me, the physical therapist, but maybe they are more comfortable talking to the chaplain. So we're still getting that soldier what they need. Um, and the classification does not drive the care. It simply informs the prognosis. I mean, it's certain, we have certain um, treatment-based classifications almost inside of it, uh, but there is no give up. That's not one of the treatment options. Give up is not on the flow chart. Nice. When you have someone category, categorized as inelastic, are you providing, and again, probably varies, but are you providing the same like timeline for follow-ups or are you going to let them go for like this graded exposure to in, in group exercise for a little bit longer before you follow up or what does that typically look like for you? 
like to, we'd like to follow up in two weeks, and, and that's based on a, a couple studies uh, that looked at follow-up at two weeks for patients that were considered high risk um, from either start back or FABQ for low back pain. Much of the research on this is in low back pain. So, you know, how we generalize it. Um, but I'll tell you that, that at least in my clinical practice, that two-week mark is great because if you have someone coming in four or five times a week for a group fitness class, because we used reconditioning for that, right? So every day we had reconditioning. So if you have 10 treatment days and then they come in that third week, so you're probably getting, you know, 12 treatment days before that second, um, that second look in clinic, uh, that, that's a fair amount of exposure, right? You know, PT goes for an hour and 15 minutes, multiply that by 12. That's a lot of time that, you know, you've got someone observing that patient that you're seeing how they're progressing. You're seeing how they're, uh, you know, how they're reacting, you know, really the evaluation never ends, right? We're constantly reevaluating. So that, that time in the group fitness class, we call it the group fitness class, but what is it? It's just more objective examination. It's more observation. Um, so we gather a lot of information after two weeks, we look to see if there's a change. Uh, and then if there's no change, um, then we make sure that we're not missing something. Uh, and we'll drive on for another two weeks and, and see if we can get a change in 30 days. Uh, since we have that as our, our cutoff due to readiness. Got it. Yeah, it's, it all, it all sounds good. I'm, I'm really excited to kind of try to get this going within my brigade. And, and I'm finally, like I said, have some, some other H2F staff members coming on that will help offload some of the meetings and emails and all of the, uh, that other crap to focus on actual day-to-day stuff and hopefully start making some change. So help me kind of, or like others out there, help me kind of picture just, I, I know we've been over this a lot, but just kind of really uh, na- uh, nail it down. I'm a patient coming in, uh, you know, like for example, I have sick call in the morning. And so you've never seen that patient before. They're getting on their cell phone and they're, they're going to fill out an OSPRO if it's the initial evaluation. And within that, are they going to be doing like a willingness to change as well? Yes. So the, they'll fill out a willingness to change, an OSPRO, a body chart. They will fill out um, Promise 29, which is an adaptive patient-reported outcome for physical function and pain interference. They'll fill out a patient-specific functional scale, and they'll answer a question as to whether or not they feel, ready, they feel that they could pass the ACFT, and if so, at what level. So we get a, a full look um, at them at that initial visit. And then at the follow-ups, which ones are they, are they repeating the, or does it depend? At the, follow, uh, the follow-ups are the same surveys, but we've also added a global rating of change. So the idea here is that people aren't just a survey item. And I think you see this, you know, as, as that's why we're moving towards, our uh, health is moving towards these adaptive surveys, um, is because we're finding that different surveys tend to measure different things. So we try and get an all-in-one, um, and we're just not quite there yet. Uh, so this way, we're getting a couple looks. Um, so we might see someone that is improving on the promise scale but doesn't feel that they've improved, uh, and that, that kind of helps drive a conversation rather than just looking at it and saying, hey, you've improved. Uh, mm-hmm. We're good to go. We're going to keep doing this because, you know, you might, lose, you might lose your patient there. I realize it's getting darker. I'm going to mess with my lighting here. <laughs> Yeah, we've been been chatting a while. So, okay. I guess again to play devil's advocate, you know, sometimes, right, at least how I've it set up how I have it set up right now is it 
gets kind of busy and hectic in there, especially without anybody else, you know, helping me out. So it seems potentially uh, difficult to do, especially in like a sick call environment when I have like four people there in the waiting room and then telling them all to fill up, you know, these instructions. And while I'm trying to teach this guy exercises and uh, did you have any issues with that? So we didn't run, we initially ran a sick call and then we stopped running a sick call. Mm -hmm. Um, And what sick call turned into was uh, that was my athletic trainer's domain and it had to be an acute injury because if it's not an acute injury, it's not appropriate for musculoskeletal sick call. You could come in and make an appointment. Um, Pain for six months is not sick call. That's, you know, time to make an appointment. So um, my athletic trainer would get them all to fill out their outcomes. He would do a quick screen, um, come up with a very rough uh, category and then try and get them scheduled the same day essentially, um, on his schedule or mine. That worked out pretty well for us. I, I did a, um, abbreviated triage at reconditioning. When I ran reconditioning, it was difficult. However, after the initial glut of patients, that's the thing is it's a lot, it seems like a lot of work on the front end. Like you're collecting all these outcomes and you have to do all this stuff. But as you churn through the system, you're not going to have as many people that stay on your schedule because you're going to figure out okay, I could get them better faster. So now they're getting, they got better or I can't help them. So now they're off my schedule and they're just someone else. So it, it does save you time. Um, it just takes about a month of investment. And then at that point, things really start to calm down. I would recommend that when your athletic trainer arrives, that athletic trainer embeds his or herself with the primary care provider and essentially takes all, you know, it's that Colonel Joseph Moore model, uh, you know, shits and spits to the left, aches and pains to the right. Um, Because athletic trainers are very adept at working in the sports medicine model, uh, which is, you know, more biomedical. um, And that's, that's really their bread and butter. So if they get the first crack at acute musculoskeletal in the clinic with the PCM, you, you've handled the, the immediate um, right there. Uh, because they're going to identify immediate. They're going to identify delayed because that's what all of our great special tests are for. So if there's any question, then that athletic trainer can triage down to the physical therapist and say, you know, this could be a minimal, it could be a delayed, it could be an inelastic, it needs another look. Um, but if you funnel it there, I think it's a the best use of resources. We we didn't really get the chance to implement that because by the time we really got rocking and rolling with this system. I mean, we barely, we kind of worked ourselves out of a job. I don't mean to brag, but we just, we had a lot more time than we had patients. Um, however, with Josh going over to Fort Bragg, that's something that we've talked about is because uh, Josh, my athletic trainer had, you know, 10 years of experience working in sports med clinics. Um, and, you know, we thought, well, why didn't we think of this? It's, it's the same model. It's less of a conceptual leap for an athletic trainer who's coming into the military environment. Um, and it also helps by opening up your access as a physical therapist. So if you want to get better quality of care for your patients, if you want to decrease your ball patient volume and decrease your likelihood of burnout and probably enjoy your job better, I think it's worth taking another look at this system. I think it's, it's excellent. And Chris's results has speak for themselves, especially since it's so, uh, it's such a novel thing and it's such a, uh, a new thing that he's implemented and to get it dialed down as well as they have and to provide all these different resources and trainings that are available 
I think that it would be uh, uh, very definitely a missed opportunity if you didn't take advantage of it. So that would be kind of my final thought, unless you had any other anything to add, Chris. Well, I will say that Colonel Silvermero calls this a game changer. So having him in my corner is a pretty powerful, um, a powerful endorsement. But, you know, I would push back on one thing you said. I, I wouldn't call my system very novel at all. I would say that it's everything that we know to do, but it provides a system for it. Um, there's a great line I get in, in Atomic Habits is that, you know, you fall to the level of your systems. You don't rise to the level of your potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we are seeing... 12 patients a day, you are going to fall to the level of your systems, no matter what you learned in school, no matter how many letters after your name, you got to have a system. If you look at any of the major classification systems, they all work like this. There's an initial triage. There's a decision uh, either based on irritability, or if you look at O'Sullivan's classification, it's based on uh, whether you've got um, you know, a tissue-oriented thing or a more psychosocial-oriented. I mean, this is not new. Uh, this is very, very much established in the literature. It's just a matter of doing it. And, and I tried to keep it concise uh, in my model, but I mean, definitely standing on, on those folks' shoulders, um, motion makes it happen. Motion gives you the data. The triage model shows you how to use that data to its best effect. They go hand in hand. Uh, so I, I'd say that for anyone listening, if you don't buy into the triage model, that's fine, but please use motion because how are you going to know how good you are or how not good you are? How are you going to know? How are you going to demonstrate value to your commander if you don't know how you're doing? Why should H2F continue to exist if we can't demonstrate a tangible readiness benefit? Because some general sometime is going to say, I'm spending a lot of money on this. What am I getting out of it? And we need to be ready and say, sir, you're getting this. Love it. Thanks for coming on, man. It was great to to catch up. And uh, I'm again, I'm really excited about this. And I hope that, uh, you know, you'll be able to take my calls from Italy when I have about a hundred other questions. (laughs) Always, man. Always. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about this project. It's a big passion of mine. So, um, you know, thanks for uh, getting me on the call today. Of course, man. Take care. Later. All right, everyone, just have one more quick ask before you go. Uh, If you got something out of or you just enjoyed this week's episode, It'd really mean a lot if you could take the time to either subscribe, review, or share this podcast with your family, friends, fellow servicemen and women, uh, whoever you think you know might be able to benefit from it. Uh, my goal is it really is to reach as many people as possible and, and to hopefully help them find better health and wellness. So if you could uh, you can take the time to do this, it would really mean a lot. Uh, thanks, everyone. I hope you have a great rest of your day.